You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. Um, I'm a little sad this morning, starting, um, starting my time with you, this message um, uh, this morning, because I have no moose stories. Um, I, I listened to the message last week and I thought, I've never hit a moose. I've never even come close to hitting a, a moose. I've driven into a, a flock of birds once. It was actually very scary. I was coming out of Mayfair Lakes Golf Course and, uh, in Richmond, and I'm driving, and out of sort of this kind of ravine area, about 20 birds just flew literally right in front of the car, and Nicole and I were driving, and I must have killed about 15 of them. It was a little bit eerie, but, but never a moose, and I didn't flip three times when I hit the birds either. So that's the best I got for you. Take your Bibles. Turn with me. To the book of Ephesians, we're in Ephesians 6. We made a turn for home last week. We're finishing this great letter next Sunday. And what we did last week is, whether you realize it or not, we began what will be a three-week mini-series on uh, spiritual warfare. And Pat kicked things off last Sunday by walking us through verses 10 to 12 in chapter 6. And what he told us is, is that we have a real enemy. We've encountered this enemy already in the book of Ephesians, but it really gets highlighted here in the last few verses of, of the letter. We have a real enemy. We, we are in a real war, and we have a real call to stand firm and to fight back. And we do so in three ways. Just to remind you of last week, we don't stand, number one, we don't stand firm on our own. We do stand firm, but not on our own. We stand firm because... Uh, or only because we stand firm in the might and the strength that is Jesus. And we have to stand firm this way because our enemy is formidable. So we must rely on the the strength and might that is found in Jesus. Look at verse 10 just to remind you of last week. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So it's his might, it's his power that must strengthen us. Second, we must be aware of the enemy's schemes. We saw that last week as well. That's the first rule of war, know thy enemy. Pat addressed some of those schemes last week. I'll remind you of some of them today as well. And third, we must put on the whole armor of God. We are in a battle, but we have everything necessary to fight that battle and stand in that battle, and we need to be always standing, but knowing that that we have the assurance that we can win because of what is ours by way of the armor of God. The armor is what we're going to look at today in great detail, but before going there, as is my tendency, I want to give some beginning overarching comments specifically related to spiritual warfare, because I think there's a lot of confusion today. Uh, misunderstanding. There's some fear today. Um, And so let me give you some foundational comments before going to our text. Here's the first. Satan's Satan's first and primary enemy is God. Satan's hostility is against God, and it's against what God is doing. God is creator, and Satan seeks to destroy what God is creating, and that includes you and me, his new creations. 
And therefore, Satan's hostility is against us too. Satan's hostility is against everything and everyone who is on God's side. And what Satan's tactic or his scheme is, is to do the opposite of what God does. So God brings light, Satan brings darkness. God brings life, Satan brings death. God brings truth, Satan brings deception. God brings assurance, Satan brings doubt. God brings order, Satan brings disorder. Why do I bring this up? Well, I bring this up because there is a a perception today and probably popularized by mainstream media, but you get the sense in the church as well that Satan's main goal in life until the end is to bring as many people to hell with him as possible. It's not true. First of all, Satan wants hell as much as you and I want hell. Hell is not Satan's domain. Hell is Satan's torment forever. As we read in verse 12 from last week, Satan is currently in the heavenly places. Not not meaning he's in heaven, but he's in the spiritual realm. As Pat referenced last week, Revelation 12 tells us that Satan accuses us, you and me, before God night and day. Here's the second overarching comment on spiritual warfare. I'll give you five really quick. Well, sort of quick, not really quick, sort of quick. Here here it is. It's a longer one. Although there is reason to believe that Satan knows that his end is inevitable. I mean, if you remember the demons before Jesus saying to Jesus, Jesus, have you come to torment us before our time? So it seems to suggest that Satan knows his end is inevitable, but there's also enough to suggest that Satan still holds out hope for victory. Now, we've read the end of the book. Most of us have. We know the fate of Satan. Satan knows the end of the book as well. He knows the book better than we know the book. But we must must keep in mind the pride of Satan which led to his initial downfall. How how proud and blinded by his pride is Satan? Well, think about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. In one of the temptations, and there were three from Satan towards Jesus, in one of them was packaged the call of Jesus to fall down and worship him. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Satan knew that Jesus was God in flesh? Well, of course. The demons did. Think of the pride then. Think of the audacity that he would look at God in the eyes and say to God, fall down and worship me. Here's my argument. Satan is the deceiver, but I also think Satan is the deceived. That would be my argument. That yes, he knows the end of the book. Not sure if he believes the end of the book. Something to think about. Third comment, Satan, this is so important. Oh, Midtown, listen to me. Satan, Satan has allowance to work on those in Christ, meaning you're a Christian, right? The book of Ephesians, you're in Christ. Satan has allowance to work on those in Christ only as much as we allow and God permits. 
Why do I say that? Well, because those in Christ have been bought by Christ. You are not your own. You are now a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are in Christ. He is in you, as Jesus says in John John 15. James writes that if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. He won't even walk away. He will flee from you. John writes that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, meaning there is one in you and one in the world. The the spirit of Jesus in you isn't sharing his dwelling place with someone else. And therefore, to be very, very clear, Christians cannot be demon-possessed, for you are already God's possession. You are already God-possessed. You're possessed by God. That's great. He owns you. Satan and his demons can't possess what God already owns. Why do I bring this up? Because there is much talk today about something called deliverance ministry. This is the idea that Christians, after coming to Christ at times, at least once perhaps, or at times, need to go through a further deliverance from the onset of Satan's power and work. I have some very close friends in ministry who are proponents of this idea. I just don't see it in the scriptures. But when I say that, please hear me. In this topic of spiritual warfare, that doesn't mean that Satan can't rage against us. I'm not saying that either. Paul writes, just think about Paul. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look at this text in our prayer series in the summer. Paul writes that a messenger of Satan was sent to him to harass him. Like, think about that. And what does Paul do? He prays, man. Three times, and I think these are three seasons of prayer. I think he got other people praying for him. I think he probably fasted. He had other people fasting. Three seasons of prayer. He wanted to be delivered. What was God's answer? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Paul does talk about being delivered. In Colossians 1, you can read this on the screen behind me, he writes there that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, Satan's realm, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And yet, in spite of that deliverance, there is a God of this age that we wrestle with. That's the language, Paul. Think wrestling match. And that enemy, that one we're combating, wants to throw us to the mat. He wants to put a chokehold on us, and he wants us to tap out. That's the imagery Paul is, is giving us here. It's spiritual hand-to-hand combat every day. God is sovereign. Yes, we have been delivered. Yes, Satan is on a leash. Yes, but he has, he has broad limits. Christians also can grant the devil footholds, too. We we saw one of those possible, possible footholds back in chapter 4. Pat reminded us, of, re- reminded us of it last week. That foothold back in chapter 4 was unresolved anger. Being angry and then, and then sinning. But there are a myriad of foothold possibilities that we can give to the enemy. Any unabashed, practiced, unrepentant sin gives the devil a foothold. But there are more Greed, lust, 
Sexual immorality, bitterness, drunkenness, gossip, self-righteousness, self-loathing, sloth, workaholism, unresolved issues from your upbringing. That's huge. That's a possible foothold. They all give the the devil an in. The devil wars against us, and if he sees in us a vulnerability, he'll use it. He'll use it to take advantage of us. All of our footholds look different, but we all have them. We need to be aware of them. But what was Paul's counsel back in chapter 4 with the foothold of unresolved anger? It says, deal with your anger, man. Reconcile. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And the foothold will be gone. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But this doesn't mean, and I know I keep on going back and forth, but I want us to get this. It doesn't mean that the enemy won't come back down the line. We have battle here, but we're in a war with a bunch of little battles. The war doesn't end until we see Jesus face to face. We've got battle, 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 battle. Just think about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. That three temptation period of Jesus' life ends in what we read in Luke 4.13 is that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Same with us. Being in Christ and being his possession doesn't free us from his onslaught. But we must remember that Satan is only allowed to work in as much as we allow and God permits. Do you remember what Pat referenced last week when he took us to Peter and Jesus having this conversation and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Here's what we need to remember about that scenario. Satan demanded to sift you like wheat. Peter was sifted like wheat. Satan saw a foothold possibility. What was the foothold possibility in Peter? His pride. Remember in the lead up? Jesus, all of them, they may run from you, deny you. I'll die with you, man. I'll die with you. Peter didn't deny Jesus just once. He denied him three times. He was sifted. What got him through it? The intercession of Jesus. He says to Peter, Peter, just so you know, this is what has been demanded by the enemy of you, but I've prayed for you, that when you return, First of all, that your faith won't fail, but then when you return, you will strengthen your brothers, and you know what Jesus could have added, and you'll be a little more humble as the result. That what Satan thinks is a victory actually is going to do something in you to make you better down the line. Did Peter have the ability to resist that temptation? Sure he did. But his pride got in the, got in the way. Satan was permitted with limitations, Job-like, to do what he did to Peter, but God stood sovereign over it as he does all, all temptations. Let me explain this a little further. And yes, don't worry, type A personalities, we are going to get to the text. Let me, um, let me explain this. When I say uh, 
God stands stand sovereign over all ten, temptations. I, I've spoken about this before, but let me remind you. James writes that God doesn't tempt us. He is not tempted by evil, and he tempts no one with, with evil. So God doesn't tempt, he tempts no one. Satan, on the other hand, is called the tempter. Cap, capital T, tempter in Matthew 4, verse 3. He stands behind all temptations. Not that he personally tempts us, but he uses his minions, he uses the world, he uses our flesh. Ultimately, Satan is behind all temptations. But in spite of both of those being true, God doesn't tempt us, Satan stands behind all temptations, he's the tempter. Notice what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, a very, very well-known text. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He doesn't tempt us, but he stands sovereign over all temptation. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to Endure it. Midtown, I'll say it one more time. Satan has allowance to work in our lives only as much as we allow and God permits. But remember, God is faithful. He provides ways of escape. And Jesus, our sympathetic high priest, continues to intercede. But we must be aware of our possible footholds. Here's the fourth of those five. I'll do the last two really quick. We are to never make an enemy out of the mission field. This takes us again back to last week. As we saw then, our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but what stands behind flesh and blood? What stands behind everything today? I, I, I got into a conversation with my Christian neighbor about a year ago. He had great concern because some people, new people, new neighbors had moved into the cro across the street and were hanging out on the street together. He says, I'm worried about it. I'm concerned about it because they're Muslim. And I said to him what I just said to you. They're not the enemy. They're the mission. And they live right there. Going back to those exchanges between Peter and Jesus, when remember the scene when Jesus, or excuse me, Peter says to Jesus, you're not to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. That was the enemy, ultimately. Yes, he had to deal with Peter. Yes, of course, he had to deal with Peter. But he had eyes to see. Jesus had eyes to see what was going on. Paul, going back to Paul again, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Satan is the one who blinds the minds of unbelievers and keeps them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel. We have to have the same perspective of Jesus. So no, if you're at a dinner party and you're talking to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, don't yell at them, get behind me, Satan, okay? Don't do that. That'll end the conversation. It'll, it won't go well. But when you're talking, keep this verse in mind and, and pray. God, shine light. They're being blinded by the enemy who blinds all minds of unbelievers. He stands behind it all. So shine light. Shine brightness into the darkness. That great song that we sang uh, this morning, just shine into darkness. Just like he did with me and you. Shine into dark places. Last, 
Last, Satan's battlefield is the mind. That's, that's where the war is fought, primarily. I could not agree more with what Pat said last week when he said that what Satan wants to do most of all in our lives is for us not to be who God created us to be and not experience what God has created us and wants us to experience. He, he doesn't want Ephesians 1 to 5 and the first part of 6 to be realized in our lives. He doesn't want us to walk in it. That's his aim in, in our lives. Satan wants to bring disillusion and disbelief. He wants to do what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? And even if he did, can you trust him? Does he really know best? Maybe he is holding out on you. Maybe there's a tree you should enjoy. He wants us to also settle into a life of... I would call it a false sense of security and apathy to believe that he isn't real, Satan isn't real, and the war isn't all that serious, or just the opposite. He would love to see us live in fear, have no joy, no assurance, no promise of salvation. He, lo he loves to bring lopsidedness and imbalance to our lives as well, where we only focus on the positives in our lives. He loves to see us zealous for doctrine, for example, but have no love. He loves that and bring division to the church. He loves truth without love and unity. He loves when we're clanging gongs or, again, just the opposite. He loves our pursuit of peace and harmony and unity above all else without truth. He loves it. That's why Paul prays to the Philippians or on behalf of the Philippians, I pray that your love and your knowledge would grow. Because Satan wants imbalance. He loves faith with no works. Loves it. He loves laziness. He loves, he loves apathy. But he also loves works without prayer. He loves it. Imbalance. He, he, he also loves when we think sin is only an out there problem. Right? Sin is community disorder. Sin is racial injustice. Sin is social inequality. Are issues like that important? Of course they are. We need to be people of justice, but they're not enough. And unless we get to the root of the problem and the heart of the issue, the eternal results will be disastrous. Midtown, if I could wrap up these five points in simple terms, what Satan wants for you and me is for us to be bad soldiers. That's what he wants. Bad representatives of Jesus. That's what he wants. He wants us to borrow from Packer. He wants us to live an unchristian Christianity where there's, again, no joy, no love, no peace, no unity, no assurance, but we're all for Jesus. And when people see it, they go, I don't want that, Jesus. That's the fight. So we must fight. We must fight against his schemes. And one of the ways we do that, finally, as we go to our text, is we pick up and we put on the whole armor of God. Let's read verses 13 to 17. Therefore, because you're in a battle, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace 
In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We'll just stop there. Six items. If you like taking notes, six items that we are to take up and put on. These items were standard issue for a Roman soldier at the time of Christ. And what Paul does is he takes them and he spiritualizes them. It's really vivid, beautiful imagery. The first thing that we learn from Paul before even looking at the specific items is that that we are to take them. We, we are to take them, and we are to take them and put them, put them on, like putting on clothes, meaning we need to recognize, first and foremost, that they are there for us, but secondly, that this is an active instruction. This is not passive. We have the armor, but we are called to put them on, that we have a part to play in this, that God's working in us, but this is our working out. This is our participation, and it begins with putting on the belt of truth. This is the first thing a soldier would do before going into battle. They wore tunics, and to gird themselves, because you don't want a bunch of fabric hanging around and getting in the way, you would put on a belt, and you would gird yourself, girdle yourself. You would gird yourself. You bring everything together. This is what truth does. It girdles us. It's beautiful. Beautiful girdle. I shouldn't say that. That's terrible. I'll get emails. So this is what, this is what truth does. It, it girds us. If, if you don't have truth right, then nothing thereafter will go, go right. So what is truth in the context of this? Truth is a reference here to what God has revealed. The truth, in simple terms, the truth of the gospel, the truth of what God has done through Jesus and who we are now in Jesus. So when we gird ourselves with truth, when we put on the belt of truth, what we should do is think back all the way to the beginning of the book of Ephesians. Remember how it started? That beautiful text, uh, chapter one, verses three to 10, where Paul begins and says, man, you're called, you're adopted, you're chosen, you're freed, you're forgiven, you're, you've got nothing but kindness ahead of you, and it's going to take forever in the heavenlies to taste it. Then we just put that on. We wrap ourselves in it every day. We remind ourselves of it. We love it. We live it. We share it. That's what it means. I mean, go back to chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, so we share it. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. When you do this, you'll be putting on the belt of truth. And if our mind is good, the body will follow. So you put on truth by knowing truth. So I have to ask the obvious question. Are you growing in the knowledge of the truth? How's your Bible reading? How'd you do this week? How's it going? Are you studying to show yourself approved? If you don't like reading, how's your listening? What are you listening to? Who are you listening to? False ideas come, they will always come. How do you deal with the false? And I'm not just talking about somebody saying, I don't believe Jesus is God. I'm talking about what you listen to, what you read, what you talk about, the onslaught of what's on TV or whatever. Are you taking those things captive to the obedience of Jesus and going, that's not true. That's not true. This is true. So how are you doing? Secondly, we are to put on 
the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate that a soldier would put on covered their chest, back in their chest and their back, upper body. Uh, a soldier needed to have their vital organs of the chest protected, obviously. What is this righteousness? Some people say this refers to the righteousness that comes at salvation, that at salvation our sin is amputated and Jesus' righteousness is imputed, that his perfection is given in our place, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that great exchange. I don't disagree with that. I, I think certainly that's where it starts. But the only problem with that is... That's not how Paul most often uses the word righteousness in the book of Ephesians. When Paul talks about righteousness, most often in the book of Ephesians, he's talking about righteousness as connected to holiness, right living. Like if you go back, for example, to chapter 4 again and look at verse 24 this time, Paul writes, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and, and holiness. So simply, how do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? Live rightly. Get up in the morning and go, I'm going to live in a way today by God's grace that honors what God has, has told me, the, the truth that he has told me. In other words, to, to put on the breastplate of righteousness is to live out the belt of truth. So we get up in the morning and go, I'm going back to the relationships between families and spouses and at the workplace. I'm going to live as a Christ one in my marriage, in my family, at work. It means I'm going to live rightly in the things that I think about, things that I give myself to. That's putting on the breastplate of righteousness every day. And when we do that, the enemy can't get in. We're protected because we're committed to right living Right living as God has given us to live. Thirdly, we are to put on the gospel of peace, shoes of the gospel of peace. Take a look at verse 15. It's a strange verse. One more time. Read strange. Paul writes, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Huh? Right? It's like, What? Can you put it simpler than what is here? It sounds weird. It just sounds wordy, wooden. But the reason why it sounds like that is because it reads weird actually in the Greek too. I'm not a Greek scholar. I know enough to be dangerous. But what I do know is that this call is an abstract noun that Paul is using. And it can actually mean three different things as reference to these shoes. It could mean that these shoes consist of the gospel of peace. That's one option. Or it could mean that these are shoes enabling us to maneuver by the gospel of peace. Or third, it could mean that these are shoes ready, readying us to share the gospel of peace. So which is it? They all work. There's no wrong answer. They consist of the gospel. They maneuver us by way of the gospel and they ready us to share the gospel. They all work. But what we need to mo know most of all, and I think most importantly, is that good boots are necessary in battle, right? I'll just use the word boots instead of shoes. 
Remember Die Hard? Remember that movie Die Hard 600 years ago? Great movie, right? Remember Bruce Willis's character, John McClane, in the tower? No shoes. Remember that scene? Glass is broken and he's got to run across the glass and his whole feet get chewed up. But he's tough. But we can't do that. We, we need good shoes for the battle against our enemy. And that's what the shoes that are given to us allow us to do. They allow us to move. They allow us to wrestle. They allow us to fight. These are, but hear this. What kind of shoes or boots are these? They're boots of peace. Why is that necessary in a battle against our enemy? Well, it's because our enemy's scheme is to attempt to destroy assurance, to take away our peace, cause panic, lay on us that we can't go on, tempt us to give up, to throw in the towel. He loves to bring discord too. But if you know you have peace with God, you can continue the battle. So put on, number one, your belt. Put on, number two, your breastplate. Put on, number three, your boots. Three Bs. Next, take up the shield of faith. Faith is what quenches the darts of the evil one, which are flaming. They don't only land on us, they burn in us. What faith does is it catches those darts and it extinguishes them. Faith puts them out. What are the flaming darts of our, that, our en- that our enemy sends our way? What are those thoughts from our enemy that pierce and burn? Well, despair, uh, doubts, despondency, I'm not loved. I've sinned against the Spirit. There is no hope for me. I have have too many sins to be forgiven. Those are flaming darts. The flaming darts of the enemy shows up in the person who says, I don't want to, I can't be baptized until I'm good enough. That's a flaming dart. That's a flaming dart. Because what faith does is it grabs it and it says, my baptism is not about how good I am, but how how good God was towards me. And it kills that dart. It quenches it. That this baptism is not a sign of my perfection, but of how the perfect one came and died in my place. That's what baptism is about. Those darts come all the time. And faith kills them, destroys them. What what is faith simply? It's, It's resting on God's word. It's... It's believing God's promises. It's looking to God's son. That's what faith is. It's remembering Ephesians 2.8, that works don't save us. None of us are saved by, by our works. We're saved by the work of Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved unto works, certainly, but works that are just a demonstration of our love and worship of, of Jesus, the one who worked for us. Faith is an exercise of the heart. How how do we fight the fight of faith? Really quickly, I'll give you two ways. Working hard for you today, sweating like a bunny. Bunnies don't sweat, actually. Sweat sweat like Mike Tyson at a spelling bee. Um, Sorry, that's an old joke. What is fight? How do we fight the fight of faith? Two ways. We don't fight alone. That's number one. 
The, the, the shield of the soldier at the time of this writing was large, two foot by four foot, but the beauty of them is they could interlock with other shields. So, so the army could go into battle, they would lock these shields, have this big, big long wall, as it were, to help the group not fall prey to the enemy's onslaught. We need each other, simply. To believe you can live the Christian life alone is a flaming dart. You've got to quench it. Don't believe the hype. You can't. You're just a part of the body. You don't have in yourself what it takes. It's not how we're created in the, in the life of Christ. We don't have, we're just a nose and ear and eye or whatever. We need each other. We need to interlock our faiths together. A cord of three is a lot stronger than a cord of one as we, as we know. We also fight by looking at Jesus, which means what? Sounds nice, but what does it mean? Remember Peter walking on the water? Gets out of the boat, man. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter gets out. Faith. Faith. Gets out of the boat. The other 11, other 11 don't, stay, don't come out with him. G- Peter's all by himself. He starts walking toward Jesus, man. It's awesome. But then the text tells us that he takes his eyes off Jesus and he starts noticing the storm. And he begins to sink. So many of us, don't we, live our lives where we get up in the morning and we just start looking at the storm. Like it's just crashing around me. This sucks, this stinks, this relationship's terrible. I can't go on. And we're just looking at the storm and Jesus is like, focus on me. Walk with me. Trust me. Like the writer of Hebrews says, cast your eyes, look at Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fifth, we are to put on the helmet of salvation. How is this piece of armor different than the other pieces? Like put on the helmet of salvation, how is that different than peace? How is it different than righteousness? Well, here's what I believe. Take it for what it's worth. Uh, There's lots of conjecture on this. I believe this is a a reference to what will one one day be better by far. That yes, we are saved, but one day we will be saved. One day we'll be glorified. One day the battle will be over. I think this is a call where every day we get up and we go, yes, we're entering a battle, but this battle will one day end and I cannot lose. And it's hard, yes. And yesterday I didn't do great. But his mercy is new today, this morning. I'm going to get in battle today. And we just put that helmet of salvation. We just walk. We put it in our minds. We just think about it. We go, yeah, I can get through this. But this will one day end. I think that's what it's talking about. Put that on your head every day. And then lastly, as I wrap up, we're to take up the sword of the Spirit. Belt, breastplate, boots. Shield, salvation, sword. You have no excuses not to remember these. 
right? Three Bs, three Ss, every day, six pieces. Belt, breastplate, boots, shield, salvation, sword, which is the word of God. Take up the word of God, which is a sword. The greatest example of this, obviously, where our minds go to probably first is Jesus again in his battle against Satan in the wilderness. How did Satan battle, excuse me, Jesus battle against Satan? Well, he battled by the word of God. We are to live by God's word. We are to battle by God's word. We're not to live by Satan's word. The, the interesting thing about Satan is that Satan is not a denier of God's word as much as he is a twister of it. Uh, he worked that way in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he did, did it in the wilderness with Jesus. Adam and Eve bit Jesus, he bit back. That's our Jesus with, with the word of God. And so as I close, this reference to Jesus and his battle against Satan takes us full circle, doesn't it? It reminds us that all of these pieces of armor are the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Armor that is ours in Christ. Armor that is Christ. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our author and perfecter of faith. Jesus is our salvation. And Jesus finally is the word made flesh. If you really think about it, the call to put on the armor of God is really a call to put on Jesus. And when we do that, Midtown, our enemy stands no chance. When we put on Christ, he stands no chance. Yes, the enemy bit the heel of Jesus, but our Jesus, he crushed his head. Let me pray. And, and Jesus, we, we praise you, we worship you, we thank you for crushing the head of our enemy. We thank you for sending the spirit to us, the one in us who is greater than he who is in the world. The one who has sealed us, secured us, is the down payment, a taste of the glory to come. The one who equips us, the one who empowers us, who strengthens us. And we need the strength of the Spirit, your Spirit. We need to be clothed with you, Jesus. For we are in a real battle against a real enemy. And we are called to stand, to stand firm until the end. So help us, help us. Father, I pray uh, specifically for people today that perhaps have been duped, taken on some fiery darts. They're living in a place of despondency and despair, hopelessness, no peace, no joy. I pray that they would cast their eyes back on you today, even in this time of response. For those that are perhaps apathetic, they just kind of go through life. They don't put anything on. I think things aren't that bad. Not realizing that danger always lurks. Sin always crouches at the door. So wake them up, I pray. 
Stir something new in them, I pray. They would come back to you today. I pray that for all of us. Forgive us for the time where we aren't obedient, we aren't active in our faith. Help us. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. Grace upon grace. We want to be good representatives of you, Jesus. We want to be good soldiers for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.